0: Yeah, sure. um, mm-hmm. Good evening, everybody, and welcome. Uh, I've been asked to to chair, but I'm really not there the i and going to, then to introduce our uh, two speakers, um, who is Luca uh, Jordan on my left, who oh. is Associate Professor of uh, oh. Social and Political Anthropology at the University of Bologna, and then Valerio Romitello, also professor of history of political documents and social sciences methodology at the University of Bologna. We are going to ask them to do a 30 to 40 minute presentation and we will open it up to the floor and we will finish by 7.30. Thank you so much for, for the invitation and uh, uh, we are going to talk about Antonio Gramsci. I don't know if uh, some of you, some of you know already this auto. It was, it's a quite popular now worldwide author. And uh, as you will see, was uh, the founder, one of the founders of the Italian Communist Party in 1921. And then he was arrested by the fascist regime and he died uh, in jail actually in 37. So, uh, maybe one of the most known theories of, Jack, of uh, Antonio Gramsci is the of power hegemony, no? what he calls hegemony, which is somehow an elaboration of Marx's thought. No? Uh, so, that will be the, the point we're going to discuss, is uh, the concept of hegemony in Antonio Gramsci. So, that is, Antonio Gramsci was born in uh, 1891, and he died in 1937, we can say that nowadays he has become a star in the firmament of the most beloved and quoted authors in many academics and social movements of the globe. I mean, we can find uh, Gramsci uh, from North America to South America, in India, in Great Britain, etc. So, whenever the concept of power and hegemony are discussed, it's quite difficult to, for research in social science or humanities, or humanities to avoid naming the name of Antonio Gramsci. Uh, nevertheless, many works uh, have pointed out that the breadth and the variety of ways in which Gramsci's thought is taken up and used today may risk making us to forget the remarkable singularity of this intellectual. Uh, like, you know, all the time when something become in fashion, you know, becomes fashion, uh, it becomes a bit uh, difficult. Uh, Gramsci never had, actually, a university chair. He never had a university teacher, and he was, uh, as I said before, one of the founder of the Italian Communist Party in 1921 in Livorno. When I don't know when the Communist Party of South Africa was founded, but maybe 21 or 22, because most of the Communist Party was, was in the world. Yeah, in the world, that was the year in the world where most of the Communist Party were founded. So in Italy as well. And then he spent 12 years in prison from 26 to 37. Actually, the last two years he was in hospital under Roma arrest because he was very sick. You know, So Mussolini put him in jail in, in, uh, Mussolini during the fascism, put him in jail in '26, And Mussolini took power in 1922, you know, the year uh, after the foundation of the Communist Party in Italy. So he was put in jail due to his militancy, militancy since the fascist regime had banned the Communist Party. From that moment on, he never expressed any doubt we can say regarding Marx. Actually, he was quite orthodox, an orthodox Marxist. And what the most part of his best known works, uh, uh, prison notebooks, that is his main uh, uh, book, uh, has, uh, it's five books within the prison of the fascist regime. So, uh, gain popularity nowadays as its reason and we would like to discuss uh, uh, d- to discuss this reason in order to explain one of the most known Gramsci concepts, that of hegemony. One of the first reasons for Gramsci, first we, uh, we would like to say something about the Gramsci current popularity all around the world. Because maybe one of the first reasons for Gramsci current popularity is the success of the so-called, nowadays, Italian theory. Uh? Uh, a label that designates a series of authors such as Gramsci, maybe Agamben, maybe Esposito, Antonio Negri, maybe uh, Earth of Empire, Multitude, all this kind of thing, uh, Vierno Bifo, et etc. Et so this label, Italian theory, was coined following a previous label, the French theory, actually. French theory referred to Foucault, Derrida, Deleuze, uh, all these kind of actors. So... Uh, in short, uh, this double phenomenon, on the one hand, the French theory, Foucault, regardless, on the other hand, and the Italian theory, Gramsci, Esposito, Agamben, well known, etc. Uh, these two phenomenons uh, did not originate either in France or in Italy. Even the label Italian theory, or French theory, was not, you know, did not originate in Itali- Italy or France, but it, is, but it originated in the US, in the United States. Uh, and maybe it's part of a, a, border, a border, yet hardly considered a phenomenon, which consists in the globalization of the academic culture. What we call, yeah, we can call it globalization of the academic culture after, let's say, the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989. So, uh, the globalization of the world academic culture since the end of the 80s has a campaign. The economic, financial, and neoliberal globalization of the markets may be led by US in the aftermath of the collapse of the USSR and the definitive capitalistic conversion of China. Uh, as François Cousset explained, is a book uh, of François Cousset, It's already there, OK. Uh, French Theory, a book published in 2008, the main architects of such operation of this globalization of academic c- uh, culture were some American university campuses. Since the end of the 80s, this university had rediscovered and relaunched a series of French authors, the Riddal Foucault, the Deserto Bourdieu, and some Italian ones, Gramsci etc. So why did this happen? Uh, the reasons are obvious, obviously many, but, some many uh, but we would like to focus on some of them. First of all, after the collapse of the communist country, U.S. Uh, geopolitical supremacy became also an academic and intellectual supremacy. To make it short, the easiest the fastest way to achieve this supremacy was to appropriate and rebrand the already existing ex- excellence in this field. And of course, this could be found in France, because France, after the Second World War, may be one of the uh, world atta- uh, intelligence centers. Right? with, with uh, Of course, uh, uh, we said... Uh, Foucault, etc. But since the end of the, uh, up to maybe Levy Store, the structural I mean, France have, have been somehow one of the most important uh, countries. So if a particular favorable circumstance also encar- encouraged this change in the late 80s and the early 90s. I mean, this shift from, uh, let's say, France to America, somehow, of the uh, academic supremacy. Uh, the decline, both in France and in Italy, of the political, intellectual, radicalism. Because since the end of the 18th, both in France, both in Italy, you know, there is a total collapse of political <coughs> academic, oh, sorry, political radicalism. And that had formally characterized the cultural production in both in Italy, both in and France. The most intellectual resources, resources of these two nations have thus become, especially in the 90s, a sort of deserted warhouses, where well, it was possible to extract cultural products of high quality, even if sometimes dated. They just needed a, a little mixing up and rebranding so as to be marked and, and to be marketed in the world under the American labels of French and Italian theory. So of course it's a kind of critique, we say, you know, uh, uh, to Italian theory and to this true fashion, Italian and French theory. Because somehow we think that these two. Uh, theory, actually we were born in the US, you know, with the process of really mixing and creating a new cocktail, putting together Foucault and Gramsci, etc., etc., and just spreading it all around the world. And nowadays, if you want to write paper, you have to quote Foucault, you have to quote this kind of loud, otherwise you are not, you know, part of, the, of that, uh, not circle, but circle. Like, like maybe. So, the consequences were both positive and negative, of not only negative. On the one hand, important authors such as Antonio Gansi have been able to acquire a worldwide reputation and an immense audience. Uh, And maybe that's why we are here, to speak about Antonio Gansi. If uh, the Americans didn't do that, (laughs) maybe we were not here to speak about this. So on the other hand, this global diffusion has led to a lower in the quality of the interpretation and of the analysis of these authors. Nowadays, it can be said that even in Italy, A sort of eclectic, consumeristic kind of studying is prevailing among students and scholars, characterized by mixing and overlapping different topics without really elaborating on them. So now the question we should ask ourselves. Whenever we read an author such as uh, Gramsci, can we be surprised by his thought, or we just use his thought to confirm the notion we have uh, previously embodied? If we opt for the first alternative, to be surprised, then we must, uh, we must try to understand what Gramsci can tell us that we don't already know. No? What is new in Gramsci, that, what is uh, telling us that we don't know. Uh, another common standpoint on Gramsci is to consider him as a victim. No? Gramsci was uh, died because of the prison, etc. In our, in our opinion, this is somehow a misleading approach. Actually, uh, Antonio Gramsci has often been considered as a a victim of both the fascist and the uh, the communist totalitarianism. Is it correct? (laughs) Somehow, you understand. That that, That he was a victim of fascism, of course, we cannot deny But it is wrong to argue that he was a victim because he exercised critical thinking and therefore was a democratic dissident, as we understand this term today, because he was not democratic, Gramsci. We need to keep in mind that in 1921, Gramsci was among the founders of the Italian Communist Party, uh, which claimed the establishment of the dictatorship of the proletariat, as it had already happened three years before in Russia. The Italian Communist Party and Gramsci instead deemed the dictatorship of proletariat as a necessary condition for the edification of socialism, which was considered the premise for the triumph of, the commun- of communism in the world. In other words, Gramsci was, of course, anti-fascist, but at the same time, he was not really democratic. Of course, we refer to our current idea of, the, of uh, democracy. Within a classic Marxist approach, Gramsci considered that we, uh, what we call nowadays democracy just as the dictatorship of the capitalists, you know, or the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, what we now consider. You know, at that time, that was not you know, considered just as another sort of another kind of, of dictatorship. So that's why we have to uh, shift from the, that dictatorship to the proletariat dictatorship, which was more democratic in the mind of, of, of Gramsci, actually. The reason why he is sometimes considered a dissident democratic is that he was put in jail when Mussolini banned all political parties in 1926. After an anarchist, Antonio Zambonia, tried to kill Mussolini, there was uh, an attempt to kill him. Many attempts actually, but this one, you know, through. after this attempt, Mussolini just decided it was you know an opportunity for him to ban all the political parties. On the other hand, Gramsci cannot be considered as a victim of communism, and some, as some scholars claim. Likely, Gramsci did not align himself with all the choices uh, that were made in USSR <coughs> between 1920 and 1930, and he certainly had come at some contrast with his comrades who aligned themselves with the USSR. But it is undeniable that the... Uh, the prison notebooks are mostly, this the most important book of, uh, of Gramsci, prison notebooks, are mostly close to the international communist movement debate within the third international led by by Moscow. This, uh, uh, the prison notebooks are within you know, the debate of the third international led by Moscow. Uh, Furthermore, we know that the Soviet embassy had interceded with the fascist government in order to obtain his release for health reasons, even if Gramsci himself preferred to seek support from the Vatican for his purpose. In Moscow, actually, Gramsci was considered a martyr of fascism, and there was some manifestation claiming his release. Paradoxically, uh, the greatest difficulty in reading Gramsci lies in the same factor that has indeed decreed his worldwide success. That is to say, the fear of fascist censorship when he was writing in prison. Of course, he scared. He was scared of of fascist censorship. Gramsci had written a lot even before he was in prison in nineteen, 19 twenty six. He was a journalist. He founded two uh, newspapers, etc. But his pri- uh, but uh, uh, in his prison notebooks, it's most articulated substantial uh, writings were elaborated in this uh, book. Is most important theoretical reflection. The crucial point is that the notebooks were written within the fear that the jailers could save them. The language that Gramsci resolved that Gramsci resolved to use is therefore deliberately watered down, purged of the more classic Marxist terminology. You could not use them. You could not use uh, class struggle, etc., etc. Or Marxism, which was bluntly clear in his previous uh, writings before he was using Marxist terminology normally, but in prison it could not. Uh, whether the language of the prison notebooks is self-censored or not, and how much, is a theme for endless philological disputes, which likely are destined to remain without a definitive solution. It is anywhere undeniable that Gramsci uses the spectrum, for example, philosophy of praxis, philosophy of praxis, to avoid the term Marxism. Huh? Uh, or maybe he used the famous term subaltern people, no? to uh, not to avoid to use the term oppressed people or oppressed classes. Uh, and then subaltern people or subaltern studies have become a label for a big, you know, uh, for the subaltern studies of all this, you know, Spivak and so on. Uh, just to give a couple of examples here. The self-chancellorship has favored the worldwide success of this writing, of this, uh, of this writing, precisely because the absence of explicit Marxist terms has allowed even a conservative public to appreciate Gramsci. Because somehow he used use uh, instead of pressure. So is is no, uh, a paradox that the way he changed himself, he has, uh, that was one of the reasons why it became worldwide appreciated, you know, because it's not you know, considered like a pure Marxist, it actually was, but you know. So coming to focus on one of the most <laughs> famous Gramscian concepts, that of a Germany. We can now grasp three separate aspects. The first one is, uh, is its depth to classical Marxist theory. The second one is the relevance in the debate on power, a topic on which Michel Foucault is, an under, is another mandatory reference. I mm-hmm. mean, when you speak of power, Foucault and Gramsci, the you know, power or hegemony are you know, the two concepts that some, most of the people use to elaborate on power. The third and final uh, one uh, concerns the historical limits of the uh, Gramsci elaboration of this concept. So, hegemony is a term that differs from domination, it is different from the domination. The epistemological context where Gramsci develops his thought, let us recall it once again, is Marxist, a philosophy that interprets every social phenomenon as a phenomenon of opposing classes. Arranged the classes on a hierarchical scale. Society is, is founded actually, according to a Marxist view, on a opposition. No? On a opposition, the dominant ones above, the dominated ones below. So class domination means a power that is exercised, domination, that is exercised as pure force, brutal force, we could say, that is domination. Without taking into account whether those who suffer with so, this force, the dominated, or subaltern, classes, agree or not. Actually, in hegemony, the dominated, they agree with the power they suffer In short, pure domination means, if you want, slavery. That is pure, pure domination. It must be yet borne in mind that for Kant, for Marx and Ganshee like, as well, the workers in the factory, the proletarians, are nothing more than modern slaves or de facto slaves, but not declared as such. Uh, hegemony, therefore, is different from pure domination because it does not only entail the mere use of physical strength or force, but it also involves the intellectual sphere. In order to build hegemony, we must seek to have the maximum possible consensus even among those who are dominated. So, uh, uh, hegemony can be a way to, uh, for the bourgeoisie to dominate the, the subaltern class, but it's always a way for the proletarians to, con- to build a new state, a new direction. So when is this result achieved? When, is, uh, when uh, uh, you, you build hegemony? When the power uh, is not a mere exercise of force, mm. aiming at maintaining social relations as they are, but it is exercised to change social relations. So, hegemony implies not just a pure domination, but a political direction, a movement, a dynamic, no? a political direction. According to Gramsci, the bourgeoisie was not able anymore to lead the society as it had been since the French Revolution. No? But in, in Gramsci thought since, since the beginning of the 20th century, bourgeoisie is no more able to, no? to control, to be the class, to have the power to exercise hegemony in the society. And so communism had to reconstruct a new hegemony. No? To sum up, hegemony includes the cultural construction of consensus around the political project. Class domination is static and violent, while hegemony is dynamic and cultural constructed. No? This is how Gramsci thought works. Actually, in Gramsci, which are the authors of the hegemony, the intellectuals? No? The intellectuals have to work no, for, to construct an hegemony. Also. Uh, But uh, what Gramsci calls an organic intellectual is not a single intellectual. An organic intellectual, at the end of the day, because a single intellectual can uh, can be inside a society and work uh, within a single part of the society, okay? So he doesn't know the society as a whole. But at the end of the day, but it's, it, it has to work within the society. But at the end of the day, the organic intellectual is the political party because it's the only institution who can put all this intellectual together and to have an idea, organic idea of the society. So all this has to be the political part. Um, so this is how Gramsci's thought works. And so we have to realize that his thought is in the footsteps of Marxism. Actually, it is an evolution of Marxism. The dictatorship of the proletariat consists indeed in a class domination of the proletariat over the exploiting classes. But it must be understood in a dynamic sense. Its goal should not be preserving the power of class, but to bring about the extinction of all hierarchies of power, of all classes and, and state bureaucracies. So once we have the power, you still have a direction. You still have to move. In explaining how this uh, result could be achieved, Marx and Engels had actually already uh, talked something about some, something similar to hegemony in a Gramscian way. According to, to them, to Gramsci and uh, Engels, uh, the proletariat, once uh, at the head of the state, no longer needs to fight the exploiters and, therefore, can direct its efforts to persuade people on the path that leads to communism. To sum up, according to the, to the Marxist point of view, which concedes, which is uh, actually close to Gramsci, the concept of hegemony is different, but in a dialectic relationship with the concept of domination. Hegemony is indeed a form of domination, but it is a transitory one. And above all, it should not be a brute force, rather, than, rather a process, which implies cultural work towards the creation of consensus. Moreover, to understand Gramsci's category, and we refer it to hegemony and also to subaltern people, we have to understand the political debate within the communist international movement at that time. I mean, we are in the third international, no? Particularly after the peak of enthusiasm following the 1917-18 revolution in Russia, the main problem now, in, after 22, etc., uh, the main problem was to create an alliance between the proletariat and other oppressive classes. The concept of hegemony, of subaltern people, sorry, which is wider than proletariat, because it's, it includes more people, no? Uh, and hegemony, which does not refer only to the proletariat, but aims at create a wider consensus within the society, so have to be understood in this particular historical moment when the uh, the change <laughs> of fascism and in, in 1922, and then of Nazism in 1933, forced the communist movement to construct a broader alliance. So these two categories, actually, they are part of this specific historical context, when the idea was to... Build that a popular form. We have to be united and not to fight against socialism, etc., etc., because now the problem is fascist and nervous. And maybe the Spain Civil War was the turning point of all this. You know, when, uh. So this approach T4, T4 implies a double conception of power, that is a double conception of the exercise of force over someone. Either as a violently exercised domination, or as an accepted act intellectually shared by those who suffer it, in our opinion, this distinction allows for a more complex and more interesting vision of power than the one proposed and elaborated many many years after by Michel Foucault. The main assumption of Michel Foucault is that power is everywhere. It is in architecture. It is in medicine. It is in the doctor. It is in the psychiatrist. Somehow, it is. No, it is inside you because we self-discipline ourselves. No, we embody power. We, no, we self-discipline ourselves, etc. So, somehow Foucault has an idea of power, like widespread inside you, but not a hierarchical idea of power. Somehow, no? you, you never know where is the center of power. Uh, so, uh, the main assumption of Foucault is that power is everywhere, even within uh, each one of us. Even through uh, it favors certain places, such as prison, asylums, factors, armies, convents, etc. However, it has no fixed focuses or hierarchies. A whole series of extraordinary historical, epistemologic, epistemological, and also microphysical analyses, as Foucault calls it, originated from this approach. Very interesting, no microanalysis of power. No? <coughs> Uh, nevertheless, Foucault manages to create a univocal, obsessive, claustrophobic view of power without an alternative, other than resisting it physically. No? In, in the Foucault conception of power, actually, what can you do against power? Just resist, somehow. Huh? Uh, one would say, even masochistically, with one, uh, one's own body, or episodically with transgressive acts of writing, etc., etc. So, for example, no, uh, Foucault uh, gives the example of the cynical philosopher in the Answered Greek. No? They were some, somehow resisting to power through uh, cynism. So, Gramsci's stance is more dialectical. Mm? It allows us to understand that not all, the, all power is equal, that there are different nuances of power, that everything depends on how it is managed either in order to impose oneself forcefully on others, pure violence, or to go towards a shared, shared sorry, direction, hegemony. Yeah. Five minutes? Okay. Here we can recognize what is commonly called the historical function of the avant-garde, which is totally <coughs> present in the fourth <coughs> judge. even though in the prison notebook it is not one of the most co- uh, correct points for fear of the jailor, jailer's eye as we mentioned earlier. And it is precisely on the subject of history that he thought, or, uh, that he thought of Gramsci displays the limits of his time. History, for a Marxist as Gramsci, means, in fact, a destiny that is inevitable. No? There is a direction in history, it can be communist, but it's an eschatological uh, fault. No? Uh, sooner or later, history will lead humanity to communism. It is precisely such a es- scatological idea of communism that, from our point uh, from our point of view, makes Gramsci somehow anachronistic today. No? Absolutely anachronistic. From this perspective, an adjective much loved by Gramsci and many of his readers becomes very significant. Uh, we are talking about organic, which is an equivocal concept, no? the, the objective of organic. So according to Gramsci, a political party is essential to politics. No? Gramsci thinks that uh, he compared in his prison notebooks the political party to the Prince of Machiavelli no? actually according to when he speaks about the Prince of Machiavelli he's speaking about the Italian Communist Party so he has to do this and that and that no? that is the, uh, the point so a, uh, but the political party is essential in the mind of Gramsci because indivi- individually no one can understand what a party can understand no? because party is more organic no, the individual. Uh, consequently, the party has to be an organic intellectual, as I said before. This is one of the most famous and often misunderstood expression of Grammish. Organic was indeed a term originating the field of biology, is the term of the 19th century biology. Uh, which was influential at the time of Gramsci. Just think of, about uh, the work of Durkheim, organic solidarity. Or this is Durkheim because we have uh, <laughs> forgot the name. And hegemony—that uh, is uh, the hegemonia in Greek, Greek, which means just to lead. Ancient to lead. Greek. Ancient, Ancient Greek. Greek, Greek, Greek. You lead someone, so just uh, so hegemony. Yes, is a consensus, but you have to lead this consensus. No, um, So I'm lost. So.
1: Uh, somehow, the
0: organic teleta is the party which will bring to an organic, organic society the communist, an uh, inter- integrated society no? without uh, classes different, different, blah, blah, blah. So, communism is still foreseen as a biological inevitable, as something biological inevitability, where the, managed, uh, the hegemonic function of the state and the party could finally melt and dissolve into the society. As a conclusion, in this perspective, communism is seen as an organicistic view. Nowadays, after the collapse of the Soviet model, the dissolution of the former bloc of socialist countries, and the transformation of China, this uh, organicistic perspective cannot work anymore. The idea to melt organically the party, the society, and the state is out of history nowadays. However, if we do not want to abandon the egalitarian tensions towards social justice inherent in the word communism, we can keep on dreaming to realize an organic fusion of part uh, of the party, state, and society. Party can organically afford, choose to explore, but the are to be found elsewhere. No? I mean, sorry, maybe I was not clear. Um, the fact that... Uh, uh, it is true that Gramsci's thought gives way to uh, an organicistic temptation, you know, where the party and the state and the society are somehow melted you know, altogether. You know. the, the state is somehow diffused within the society. Even Stalin would say like that. You know, when Stalin asked, uh, "No, the state. You no, know, everybody is part of the state. We are, you are, know, you are a bureaucrat or something." So somehow the state is. Uh, uh, Rhizomatic somehow is uh, within the society, etc. Et so there is no more difference between society and state. But uh, we think that this is, uh, okay, we have to abandon this organicistic temptation no? uh, And our suggestion is uh, for our time, we think that new politics should stem from the anthropological no- knowledge of what the suffering population think to be the best ways to cope with their uh, own sufferings. I mean, we think that maybe since this organicistic uh, uh, thought cannot work anymore, maybe where we can find out new politics is by interrogating, trying to understand which are the point of view and the solution given by the population who really (laughs) suffer about the problem. That's all. Thank you very much for listening.